You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Just moments ago, brand new video of suspect Alec Murdoch showing him talking to police following the murders of his wife and son. As we're also waiting for redacted body cam video to be released from that night in the new footage, you can see Murdoch sitting inside a police car wearing a white T-shirt, emotional and crying at times, explaining what happened. And I ran over to Maggie and uh, actually, I think I tried to turn Paul over first. News Nation's Rich McHugh was inside the courtroom for day two of this trial. So, Rich, tell us what happened. Hey, good evening, Nicole. So the, the headline was that we heard from three investigators who were first on the crime scene, one of them local, two of them state. And they basically went through what they what they saw, what the, the horrific scene that they saw and how they processed it. But the real headline was that the jury in the courtroom got to hear 30 minutes of this video of Alec Murdoch talking to police. Take a look. Alec Murdoch wore a range of emotions in court today, at times calm, others agitated and rocking back and forth. Twice he broke down completely as three of the first responding authorities to the scene testified to what they witnessed firsthand. Detective Laura Rutland of the Colleton County Sheriff's Office brought the search warrant and offered her first impressions of the horrific scene. And then the first body that I approached was the deceased male. He was laying face down at an angle with his feet inside the plane of the door. There was obvious um, trauma to the top of his head. He was covered with a sheet, but I could still see the top of his head from underneath the sheet. Um, obvious trauma. There was brain, blood, hair, skull matter all within the feed room and the ceiling. Uh, there was a deceased female, uh, approximately 30 feet. Um, across from where his body was, and she was um, covered as well. But um, I had been told that they both had uh, gunshot wounds to their heads. She was one of the first to question Murdoch. At one point, they brought him into a police vehicle where a camera was rolling. This video, our first real look at Murdoch that night. When I came back here, mm -hmm. I mean, I pulled up and I could see him, and, you know, I knew something was bad. I ran out. I knew it was really bad. <laughs> My, my boy over there, I could see it was. <laughs> Murdoch, distressed but never too emotional, recounted his story that he went to his mom's, texted and called Maggie with no response, returned home to find their bodies outside. Murdoch said he went to check for a pulse on son Paul and attempted to turn his body over. I tried to turn him over and uh, I don't know, I figured it out. Um, uh, his cell phone popped out of his pocket. I started to try to do something with it, thinking maybe, but then I put it back down really quickly. He mentioned the boating incident that involved son Paul, and the investigators returned to that subject a few times over the course of the 30-minute video. Later, the prosecution asked Detective Rutland her impressions. She found it odd that he was checking on his mom that night, and he asked, given that it was such a bloody scene with blood spatter everywhere, did Murdoch appear to have blood on him? And you also told the jury that Alec was clean. 
And you're referring to his shirt was clean, correct? Correct. His shorts were clean, correct? Correct. You remember the litany of Mr. Matters? Shorts, shirts, shoes were clean, correct? That's correct. He was clean. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. In this episode, I'm going to continue to share my analysis of the 34-minute-long sled interview of Alec Murdoch in a car at the crime scene on the night he claimed he discovered Maggie and Paul's bodies. There's still a lot to cover in this case, so there's no preamble or chit-chat in this episode. I'm going to dive straight in, and so here's your trigger warning. Listener discretion is advised. Now, in the last episode, I left off having told you about Rogan Gibson and Murdoch's bizarre actions regarding his repeat contacts that night, and conversely, his lack of repeat contacts to Buster and Maggie's family members, to the people who should have mattered the most. You see, in these moments, it paints a picture about Murdoch and about his thought process, his decision-making, and what mattered most to him. Getting his story straight mattered to him. Impression management mattered to him. Corralling and sowing seeds for law enforcement to pick up mattered to him. And as I mentioned in the previous episode, after Murdoch mentioned Rogan, he went off on an incredibly bizarre tangent. And I'm going to play it one more time for you to fully appreciate and understand just how bonkers this tangent was. However, I do believe it was deliberate and I do believe it served a purpose. Here's a reminder. Have you talked with any of these guys tonight? Talked with Nolan, yes, sir. Is he out here? Yes, sir. Okay. I tried to call Rogan. was one of the people that, he's the boy that I told you lives around the corner. That's very, you know, he's just a good, helpful young man. You mind if I open the door really quickly? Go right in. Do what you need to do. So is there anybody that you can think of that we need to talk to tonight? Is there a name that comes to mind? I mean, I can't tell you anybody that I'm overly suspicious of (coughs) off the top of my head. Okay. You know? Um, I mean, this is such a stupid thing. I'm even embarrassed to say it. But it just didn't make any sense. I just hired a guy out here mm-hmm. and he really he wasn't cutting the mustard but I hadn't told him this yet. Paul's been working with him a lot. He killed the sunflower seeds in our dove field just recently which is why Paul was here doing this. He told Paul a story the other day about how when he was in high school he got in a fight with some black guys and FBI undercover team observed him fighting those guys and put him on an undercover team with three Navy SEALs and that their job was to kill radical Black Panthers and they did that from Myrtle Beach to Savannah. Now, I really don't think this guy, you know, mm-hmm. is probably the person, but that's just so friggin'. Yeah, that's kind of far-fetched story. That's weird. But he was off today. Okay. He took his daddy to the doctor. What's his name? C.B. Rowe. 
R-O-W-E. Yeah, and I sent him a message to text me earlier today about sunflowers, and he called me back when I was on the way to my mom's house. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Did you talk to him at that time? Briefly. I was on the phone with a lawyer friend of mine named Chris Wilson from Bamberg, so I told him I'd call him back okay. tomorrow, see him in the morning. When you briefly talked to um, Mr. Rowe, what was his demeanor or attitude? or? I mean, it seemed normal. I mean, I asked him about the sunflowers, and so, you know, I mean, I'm sure he's a little bit. Where does he live? I don't exactly know. Somewhere in Bluff, I mean, in Bronson. Okay. <clears throat> do you have his phone number? I do. You got it with you, closer? I do. You know, but I do think him and Paul got along pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, that's just really, really weird. What did you make of that? Now granted, Murdoch caveated this by saying it's a stupid thing and that he was embarrassed to say it, but he went there anyway. He told law enforcement that he hired a guy who wasn't cutting the mustard and who had killed the sunflowers, that this guy had told Paul he got into a fight with some black guys and an FBI undercover team observed him fighting those guys and put him on an undercover team with three Navy SEALs. He said that their job was to kill radical Black Panthers and that they did that from Myrtle Beach to Savannah. He said he doesn't think that that's the guy, but he was off in the day and that he took his daddy to the doctor and he said that his name was C.B. Rowe. I mean, cool story, but what absolute nonsense. Dear Lord, there are just so many issues with that story. The FBI don't recruit for the Navy SEALs and working with or being in the Navy SEALs is a big deal it's the best of the best. They're not going to take an untrained street kid out with them on any sort of operation. Also, why drop this into the conversation here? It does feel somewhat strategic to me, like it had been thought through in advance, like it was planted in the way that it just came into the conversation. And it's just so far-fetched and just so ridiculous to say this right after discovering that his family had been gunned down. Also, thinking about it, another context to consider is that given Murdoch's drug addiction history and financial fraud history, which I'll come on to, it's much more likely for either one of these things or both of these things to be the motive for the double murder. But noticeably, Murdoch doesn't offer either of these things up. That's significant to me. Instead, what he does is come up with this wild tale and share it with the officers, and I can only think that due to the fact that Murdoch was a lawyer, that he knew very well that if he threw enough spaghetti at the wall and sent people off in all directions, something might stick, and it would certainly buy him some time at the very least. You see, in a case like this, every lead has to be followed up, so the police would have to follow up on this regardless. And rather helpfully, Alec Murdoch gives Sled C.B. Rose's phone number. Now, for me, that felt like another job done that Murdoch could tick off his list. Then Murdoch was asked about the people on the boat and whether any of the passengers might have had it in for Paul. Take a listen to this. Going back to the boat incident, um, anybody on that boat... Uh, 
really have a hard on for Paul that you would think would come after him or know of any direct threats from people on the boats? I don't know of any direct threats between any of the people on the boat okay. specifically, but I, I do think there's been a small amount of yip yap between a couple of them, but not recently. Okay. <clears throat> Most of this was stuff from people that Paul didn't really know. Okay. It was some people that he knew distantly, but more times than not, when I learned about it, it was somebody that he didn't know. Okay. Um, it's like, for example, he went out in Charleston a couple months ago, came back, you know, he got a black eye. And, you know, he can't defend himself right now because he has these charges. So, you know, he would, Paul was a real tough man's man. Mm -hmm. You know, he would just. He would defend himself, but he hadn't been. That's right. But how was he handling that case? <coughs> moving over everybody? As far as what? How was he handling it? I've never been prouder of him than the way he has handled the pressures and the adversity in that situation. I think I've told Danny that before. Mm -hmm. I mean, Paul is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful kid. He can do almost anything. He gets along with almost anybody. <coughs> so there's a lot of throat clearing by Murdoch, lots of riddles and doublespeak. He gave an example of Paul being in Charleston and getting a black eye and said that he could not defend himself. What's more, he added, Paul was a tough man's man. But poor Paul couldn't defend himself due to the charges. Poor Paul, right? Murdoch said he had never been prouder of Paul for the way he handled the pressure and adversity in that situation. He said, Paul is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful kid who can do almost anything and get along with almost anybody. Wow. For me, this segment speaks volumes about Murdoch, about who he is and what he values. What about poor, poor Mallory Beach? Absolutely no mention of Mallory, the real victim in the boat crash. This is completely absent. This is significant, again for me. Granted, none of this is normal, but I would wager most parents or any normal person would express some sort of sentiment for Mallory and her family and how awful it was that she died. But there was no empathy. No remorseful sentiment. In fact, the opposite was true. And just to underline that Paul was certainly not the victim regarding the boat charges, but here's Murdoch having no trouble and no qualm painting him as such. This tells me a lot about Murdoch and the front he's prepared to put on and the lengths he's prepared to go to, for it not to look like he killed Paul and Maggie. I mean, he makes out like he's the proud doting father here. But I can tell you he's not all in, he's not invested. He said Paul could almost do anything and almost get along with anybody, just in case the investigators found out the actual truth of the matter. All the evidence pointed to the fact that due to Paul, due to his behaviour, due to his belligerence, due to his assault on Morgan and then putting the boat's throttle down, due to all of that, 19-year-old Mallory Beach was dead. 
and Paul did that. And the fact that Paul abused Morgan and he abused her that night in front of all their friends, that's significant. They all suspected it, but that was significantly the first time they witnessed it for themselves. Paul spat at Morgan and assaulted her just before he put the throttle down on the boat, right before the crash. He was blind drunk. He tormented all the passengers that night. Anthony wanted to get off the boat. They were all fearful. And here you have Murdoch acting the doting father and saying how proud he was of Paul. And then he looked across to Special Agent Owen to see how that landed, which was interesting to observe. He tried to do it discreetly, but the camera at the front picked it up. And I am not buying what he was selling. Are you? At 18 minutes and 52 seconds in the car interview, he's asked about whether there were any weapons out there. And sled agent David Owen said that he wanted a list of all the guns. Murdoch then said that Paul worked for his brother, John Marvin, as a handyman, and that he got back earlier that day, and that he'd been driving around with his dad that day too. And this is what Murdoch said about Maggie, having opened the car door and spat outside the car. Take a listen to this. Was it unusual for Maggie to feed the dogs this time of night or check on them? Oh, no. I mean, she played with those dogs every, all the time. And it was especially common for her to, you know, she's been gone for a while Mm -hmm. to come and let especially two of them out to run. Okay, so she pretty regularly comes out here in the evenings? Very regularly. Okay. She comes out here a lot. Murdoch went to say that Maggie played with those dogs every... And he then changed what he was going to say and edited it and said, all the time. This little correction meant that he didn't give any specifics, so he can't be proven wrong. For example, if he said every day or every night, that can be proven or disproven. And so he said all the time, which is suitably vague. He then said, and it's especially common for her, you know, she's been gone for a while, to let especially two of them out. So that's very interesting to me, because he said she's been gone for a while. So if she's been gone for a while, what does that mean? For how long? And where was she? But unfortunately, that wasn't followed up by the investigators. And it was a really important pickup to establish why Maggie had been gone and where she was living. These are the key moments with domestic homicides and domestic violence cases to pick up on. Separation is a high risk factor for serious harm and femicide. This was the moment to ask that question. But unfortunately... Detective Rutland changed the subject and asked about cameras at the property. And Murdoch answered that there were cameras, but none were there by the kennels. The moment was lost. Then Special Agent David Owen asked about Maggie's doctor's appointment that day and asked if she was home at supper time or by 6pm or 7pm. Now Murdoch wouldn't be drawn and he said that he thought it was later than that and that Paul was home and that they messed around Then he had a 25 to 30 minute nap. He called Maggie and didn't get an answer. And then he went to his mum's. I also thought it odd that Murdoch went round to his mother Libby's house that night. It was his father who was taken into hospital and who was ill. And he'd asked Maggie to go round there because of that. 
That's why it's odd that Maggie goes there and then she's up at the kennels and Murdoch just goes off to his mum's without her. That just doesn't make sense to me, but that's what he said. Also, his mother Libby had Alzheimer's and often with Alzheimer's it gets worse at night. So again, it just sounded strange to me that that's where he went. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Take a listen to this and also note the noises that Alec Murdoch makes. What did you do today? Were you at the office or? Nope, I was home. I came home. Paul and I messed around. I, I, uh, I was up at the house. Uh, Laid down, took a nap on the couch, probably, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes. I got up, I called Maggie, didn't get an answer, and I left to go to my mom's. She had said she might ride with me, but she normally doesn't when I go over there. Um, And I think I texted her. And she's very good about answering the phone, so that was odd, or calling me back. Mm -hmm. So that was odd, but it wasn't that big a deal. Now what time was that? What what time was what? That you sent her a text message. I checked, texted her at 9.08, going to check on M, be right back. And then I texted her at 9.47. That must be when I started to come back. I think I called her before that. But let me make sure. Uh, pretty sure that I called her 9.45. And then I tried Paul. And then, no, I think that was riding. I think that might have been riding over there. Ten o three. I mean, my calls are right here. Yeah. So, um, 
obviously this is when this is when I at 10.06 Yes, sir. Ah, thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye. Take a call. Anybody else want some gum? <sighs> you don't have any water, do you, Danny? Sure. I'm sorry. I don't need it. If you, behind Danny's head, is a case of water. It's not a big deal. Yeah, I got some right here. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, ma'am. So Murdoch tells off, showing him his phone, and says, 10.06, this is when, and he says no more. He had his phone in his hand. So he ends with fading facts, and then he opens the car door and spits outside the car, and then he asked if he could have some gum. He took the gum, and then he asked if he could have some water, and he's given a bottle of water. Now, noticeably, all these points I see he's very good at breaking the tension, and diverting, and distracting, and deflecting. Then Special Agent David Owen said he'll no doubt have other questions to ask him, and Murdoch replied that he'd be available. David Owen then asked him about other family. Murdoch explained his brother John Marvin talked to Maggie's sister's husband, Bart, and that they would tell her parents. So that's interesting to me. Murdoch calls and texts Rogan Gibson many times to tell him about Paul, but he doesn't call Maggie's family himself. Special Agent David Owen asked if he had other children, and he said he had a 24-year-old son, Buster, who was on his way there. Then he threw it open to Detective Laura Rutland and asked her if she had anything else, and she asked this. Laura, you got anything? Um, this one's hard, but when you first saw Paul, you said you tried to flip him over... Was he laying on his back or on his stomach? Just like he, he just like he is. So you weren't able to move him. Okay. No, ma'am. Okay. And did he help Maggie a lot out here with the animals? He helped everybody with everything. Okay, so it was kind of routine for him to be out here as well in this, the evening. This place is his absolute passion. Okay. I tried to turn him, and then I tried, and then I checked him, and I, I mean, I, I, I think I already knew, but I checked him. And when you pulled, first pulled into the property, did you come from this direction where all our police cars are, or which way did you come in? I went to the house. Okay. And then I came from the house. This way. Straight here, yes, ma'am. Okay. I mean, where my vehicle was mm -hmm. parked is probably is, is where it was okay well no maybe not mm -hmm. exactly but it was 
pretty close because okay. I came back the same route. That's right, because you went back to get your shotgun. When I came okay. back. I can't think of anything else right now, but you know, we'll certainly be in touch. Um, Thank y'all for everything y'all are doing. Yes, sir. So, you know, just to kind of let you know what's going to go on, we're going to be out here for quite some time. Um, in the corner, we'll take custody of Paul and Maggie. Oh, yes. Can I answer that? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. What? <laughs> no, let me. I, we're finished. Let me come out. Hey, well, I'll be here when he gets here. Hmm. No, don't let him come up here. Okay, yeah. I think we're about done. <clears throat> and so at 32 minutes and 41 seconds, the interview is winding down. It's so interesting that they don't ask about Maggie and the fact that she was gone for a while, particularly given what we know about separation being a high risk factor when there's domestic abuse and coercive control. That, unfortunately, was a missed opportunity. And don't get me wrong, there's definitely pressure here for sure in this interview, and it's also hot and I would imagine it would be airless in that car with four of them in there. David Owens kept wiping the sweat off of his head. But at 32 minutes and 44 seconds, Special Agent David Owen said he can't think of anything else, and Murdoch is nodding away in the car and looks somewhat relieved. In fact, he cannot stop nodding his head. He then thanked them for what they're doing. Well, you should listen to this for yourself. All right. Um, I can't think of anything else right now, but, you know, we'll certainly be in touch. Um, Thank y'all for everything y'all are doing. Yes, sir. So, you know, just to kind of let you know what's going to go on, we're going to be out here for quite some time. Um, in the corner, we'll take custody of Paul and Maggie. Oh, yes. Can I answer that? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. What? No, let me, I, we're finished. Let me come out. Hey, well, I'll be here when he gets here. Hmm. No, don't let him come up here. Okay, yeah. I think we're about done. <clears throat> All right, thank you. I'm sorry. Buster, get in here. Okay. Yes, sir. Um, I dropped my card. Uh, we'll get you another one. Sorry. I'll get you one. There you go. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so the coroner will come over and talk to you. Um, you know, they'll do the autopsy and everything and then go from there. Thank um, you. But we'll come to you before we leave. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Rutland. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Here, you want this water? Oh, yes, please. Thank you. Yep.
Special Agent David Owen said he would explain what would happen next. And it's interesting to me that Murdoch doesn't actually ask. He was told that the coroner would take Paul and Maggie's bodies and that the officers would be there for some time. Then Murdoch's phone started to ring and he asked if he could answer it. Murdoch then started to cry. Well, he made some loud noises and Special Agent David Owen put his hand on his shoulder and then the crying stopped immediately and Murdoch cleared his throat and said that he was done. Special Agent David Owen said the autopsy would be done and that they would see him before they left. They then shook hands and Special Agent David Owen gave him a backslap. Murdoch's lawyer, Henderson, then slapped Special Agent David Owen on the shoulder and they rather awkwardly shook hands. And Detective Laura Rutland followed suit and grabbed Murdoch on the shoulder and then shook his hand. Murdoch then said thank you very much and got out the car, and whilst he's getting out, Special Agent David Owen then offered him his water bottle, which he took. But what I observed was that Murdoch literally could not get out the car quick enough. For me, it felt like phase three was complete. Tick. But that wasn't the end of it. Sled interviewed Murdoch twice more, on the 10th of June, and then on the 11th of August. The 11th of August interview was fascinating, Well, one two-minute segment in particular was pure gold, and I'm going to deconstruct that for you. And I believe that that moment was the catalyst for Alec Murdoch again calling 911 on September 4th, this time to say that he had been shot. Yep, you heard that right. Captain County 911, what is your emergency? On um, Salkahatchee Road. Okay, what's the address on Salkahatchee Road? I'm by the church. Uh, what church? Here? What church are you talking about? Uh, I don't know the name of it with the red roof. Okay, what end of Sarcastic Road? Because I don't know what you're talking about. Um, at the Hampton County side. Okay, what's going on? I stop. I got a flat tire, mm-hmm. and I stopped, and somebody stopped to help me. And when I turned my back, they tried to shoot me. Oh, okay. Were you shot? Yes, but I mean I'm okay. You shot where? Where were you shot at? Huh? Did they actually shoot you? Or they tried to shoot you. They shot me, but uh, okay. Wait, you need EMS? Uh. Well, I mean, yes, I, I can't drive. Okay. Seeing and I'm bleeding a lot. Where, where part of your body? Uh, I'm not sure. Somewhere on my head. Your head? Somewhere on my head. Somebody just stopped for me, ma'am. Um, for 911. Okay. Still? Hey. Okay, let me speak to him, see if he can tell me exactly where you are. Okay, and what's your name? I'm still here. I'm going to stay on the line with you. What's your name? Alex Murdoch. Alex Murdoch? Yes, ma'am. And you see you were driving, you got a flat tire, somebody stopped to help you, and they shot you? Well, they pulled over, yes, ma'am, like they were going to help me. 
Okay, stay on the line with me. We're going to get some. I'm bleeding pretty bad. Okay. St. John's Missionary Church. St. John's Missionary Church? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And can you give me a description of the person that shot you or shot at you? Yes, ma'am. I mean, it was a, a, a white fella. Uh, I'd say a white male. A fair amount younger than me. Uh, really, really short hair. Like I said, this case is never-ending. And if you were to write it as a movie script, some might say it's too far-fetched. It's not credible. It would never happen. But it did happen. So that's a lot to leave you to think about and marinate on. And before I even get to that, next week I want to return to the crime scene and law enforcement's response. The matter of Alec Murdoch's clothes his phone data and car data, as well as the timeline, including his June the 10th interview by SLED. So let me know if you have any questions, and be sure to check out Crime Analyst on YouTube as I'm dropping content on the case there. You just have to search for Crime Analyst and you'll find me. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst, and if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced, and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.